Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Monday, August 10th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A new face mask that can translate in eight languages. Tips for lifting your mood as lockdown measures and remote working stretch on. Why people used to rent pineapples. And the Renaissance-era wine windows experiencing a comeback in Italy. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Everyone has gotten in on the mask game. It's more surprising to find a brand that isn't making their own masks than ones that are. Some places are going beyond slapping a logo on a piece of cloth, however, and are innovating in really cool ways that will help us out as mask wearing becomes a long-term thing. Like the various companies and individuals who have been working on fully or semi-transparent masks so that the deaf and hard of hearing can read people's lips. Another is a Japanese startup who wants to make masks even more functional and useful. They have made a mask that can translate into eight languages. Donut Robotics created the C-Face Smart Mask that, with the help of its corresponding app, transcribes and translates what the wearer is saying. It also amplifies their voice, which I think is really cool. I don't know if masks actually muffle people's words this much or if I just relied on lip reading and facial expression context more than I thought I did because I have a heck of a time understanding people in masks. The C-Face Smart Mask works by using a microphone embedded into the mask which connects to the wearer's phone via Bluetooth. Available languages for translation are Japanese and Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, Indonesian, English, Spanish, and French. The mask does have one fatal flaw, however. It doesn't actually offer protection from the coronavirus and is meant to be worn over a more suitable mask. And this is because the mask itself is made out of plastic and silicone, so it has to have some breathing holes or else you'd suffocate. Which I get, but that does seem to sort of negate part of the point of having it as a mask. The translation software in the mask was originally designed for a robot named Cinnamon, but the team at Donut Robotics decided to pivot to a mask when the pandemic hit. And that, to me, makes it seem like having the translation tool be inside of a mask is maybe not necessary, and since it doesn't work as an effective mask anyways, what are we doing here? But I am not an engineer, and also it sounds like the company pivoted because they got hit hard by the pandemic and needed a way to stay afloat, so they leaned into a trend that they knew would work. The Cinnamon robot stood out from competitors because it was user-friendly and the translation software even worked well in noisy environments. And that software, reincorporated into the mask, quoting CNN, uses machine learning developed with the help of translation experts and specializes in the Japanese language. Donut Robotics CEO Tasuki Ono claims that the technology is better than Google API or other popular technologies for Japanese language users because most competitor apps focus on translating to and from English. End quote. 
The company has run two successful crowdfunding campaigns to get the product off the ground, raising the equivalent of about $800,000 from those campaigns, and they plan to start distribution in Japan by the end of the year, releasing five to 10,000 masks at $40 to $50 pop. And while there has been interest from both the U.S. and the U.K., they don't expect to expand overseas until spring 2021 at the earliest. But I am sure that plenty of other startups will be working on other cool masks with similar useful features. This is just the tip of the iceberg. As lockdown in various forms continues on and many people continue remote working longer than they may have expected to, or even have companies that have straight up abandoned the office for good, it's important to check in on ourselves and try to keep our spirits up. Fast Company recently published a piece by an executive coach with some good tips for boosting your mood so that you can stay productive, creative, and happy. And despite the framing here, I would say these tips apply to anyone, whether you're remote working or going into a workplace or staying home as a caregiver or are a student. I think these are pretty universal. So the first thing is to accept that this stinks. Like, finding the good and all of that is helpful, of course, but if you've got some negative feelings going on, acknowledge them. Accept them. If you think that you're not supposed to be negative, then you'll just feel bad about feeling bad, and that's even worse. So let yourself feel bad, and remember that, especially right now, most people are feeling similarly, so you're not alone. The next one is something that I am personally a huge fan of, expressing gratitude. Quoting Fast Company, The research around the benefits of gratitude on day-to-day well-being is conclusive and compelling. Cultivating gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, build stronger relationships, enhance their health, and cope with hardships. Simple gratitude practices help lift your mood in the short term and also result in long-term healthful changes to your brain. End quote. For me, when I wake up in the morning, when I'm lying in bed trying to get out of it and trying really hard not to look at my phone first thing and maybe honestly feeling like I don't even want to get out of bed that day, I make myself think of three things that I'm grateful for. Usually they're things in the day that I'm looking forward to and which on tougher days might simply be things like, I only have one meeting today or the heat index isn't as bad as yesterday. But it's still something, you know, and honestly, it helps. It helps me kind of contextualize the day. Remember that there can be bright moments, even in the darkness, and honestly just wakes up my brain enough for me to get going. Which brings me to the next tip to get moving. Aerobic exercise, especially if it's outdoors, quote, reduces stress hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol and stimulates the production of endorphins, neurochemicals in the brain that are natural mood elevators. A strange quirk about bouts of low mood, we're most likely to skip a workout when we need it the most. Failing to exercise when you feel bad is like explicitly not taking an aspirin when your head hurts. That's the time you get the payoff, explains Michael Otto, a professor of psychology at Boston University, end quote. And it doesn't have to be much. Even just going for a 15-minute walk or taking a few minutes to stretch can help you feel better and refocus. Now, another tip that's honestly a tough one is a form of cognitive reappraisal, essentially reframing our thoughts from having to do something to getting to do something. Now, this is not going to work for everything, but you'd be surprised how many things you can reframe. 
Like, if you feel like you have to do something for work, think about how you get to have a job that supports you financially in this time when so many people don't. Or maybe that you get to do something that teaches you a new skill you can use later in your career or something. You know, get creative, and even if it's a stretch and you don't really believe it, the exercise, which could turn into a habit, has been found to, quote, regulate our emotions in the short term and play an essential role in long-term psychological health. End quote. And the final tip from Fast Company is to plan something to look forward to. This is one that has become super tough during the pandemic and has even been cited as a major reason why so many people are experiencing forms of grief and depression right now. So many things we were looking forward to were canceled and the future remains quite unknown. But we can still plan smaller things. A day trip, a picnic, even just a trip to run errands a little further off the path than usual. The planning and anticipating of something usually actually makes us happier than the experience itself. And I will leave you with one last tip of my own. A friend recommended this to me after hearing it from her therapist, and I altered it slightly. And it was super helpful to me the first couple of months of lockdown. Basically, it is to make a checklist of things to try to do every day. I put it in my notes app and check each one off when I think I've done it and then start anew the next day. And the things are... Do something nice or good for your body. Do or say something nice for someone else. Do something tiny for your living space to make it nicer. And if you have the capacity, do something creative. It really helps me kind of check myself some days where I can be like, oh yeah, my house is a wreck. If I tidy up the living room, I will feel a lot better. Or I've been sitting at my computer all day and my body feels sore and gross. And of course, doing something for someone else always makes us feel better. So take it or leave it, but those are some tips to maybe boost your mood a little. And of course, if you're feeling extra down at this time, it is never a bad idea to talk to a professional. The pineapple. You may know that the pineapple is a symbol of hospitality, but you may not know exactly why. Or that pineapples used to be such a hot commodity in some parts of the world that they used to cost around $8,000. And, of course, all of this has to do with colonialism. The pineapple is native to South America and slowly migrated its way up to the Caribbean where Christopher Columbus stumbled upon the fruit in 1493. It was one of the countless items that Columbus took back to Spain to show off, but unlike some of those other plants, Europeans found they were unable to grow pineapples in their climate. Pineapples could only be grown in tropical climates and thus had to be imported from across the Atlantic. Eventually, some Europeans did work out how to successfully grow pineapples in hothouses, but even then, the fruit remained in short supply and high demand. While people genuinely enjoyed the sweet taste and presumably thought the spiky outside was pretty cool looking, the real popularity lied in how rare they were, which meant they became associated with high-class luxury and the elite. Royals were known to enjoy them, and King Charles II went so far as to have a portrait painted of his gardener presenting him with a pineapple, to show off how fancy he was. The claim was that the pineapple in the painting was the first grown pineapple in England, but historians say it's unlikely pineapples had actually grown there yet, so the pineapple in question was probably an import. And importing really did cost a lot of money. In the 1700s, getting one pineapple from where they grew in the Caribbean just to the colonies in North America could cost the modern-day equivalent of $8,000. 
And since that figure was too expensive for many people who felt they needed a pineapple, a trend emerged that is possibly one of my favorite footnotes in history. The pineapple rental market. Renting a fruit. That doesn't sound like it would work, right? Like, what are you going to do? Give it back when it comes out the other end? Well, the thing is, pineapples weren't really for eating. They were about status. People would buy or rent a pineapple just to display it at parties to show how wealthy and cultured they were. Once the pineapple started rotting and not looking as impressive as a centerpiece, then people would start eating it, unless it was a rental, in which case they would have returned it long before that point. And get this, people wouldn't just rent pineapples to display when they were the host. Some folks would rent a pineapple just to carry it around with them all night when they were the guests. Weird flex, but okay. And I can't help but feel there must be some type of influencer age equivalent of this, like showing off a Gucci sweater on your verified Instagram account even though you're totally going to return it to the store tomorrow. But it was during this time that the pineapple began to be associated with hospitality, presumably because it was so common for hosts to include a pineapple when they had people over. So artists and designers began putting pineapple symbols on everything as a shorthand for hospitality and generosity. Dishware, tablecloths, bedposts, wallpaper. There were even plates and teapots designed in the shape of pineapples back in the 18th century. But when did pineapples become something that everyday people could afford? That was in the 1900s, and it was thanks to James Dole. Yes, Dole as in the Dole Food Company, and the magical Dole Whip. His pineapple farm in Hawaii became wildly successful, at one time supplying 75% of the world's pineapple, and ensuring that it was a fruit that could be enjoyed by more than just the 1%. Though the history of Dole, and allegedly its current labor practices, are less than sweet. Dole was one of several American sugar and pineapple companies that started plantations in the then-independent monarchy of Hawaii. Those American businessmen, including most prominently James Dole's cousin, Sanford Dole, initially pressured the Hawaiian royal family into signing a new constitution limiting their powers, and then eventually led a coup, ousting the Queen Liliuokalani and making Sanford Dole the president of the Republic of Hawaii. And this is why we can't have nice things. But hey, now you know a little bit more about the history of why you frequently see pineapples carved into the facades of hotels, and when you do, you can take a minute to think about the complicated history of the fruit, and how hospitality can mean two very different things to those who showed off the pineapple in their homes, and those who helped get it there. And ending today with a cool little bit of history that has returned, thanks to the pandemic, Buscetta del Vino, or Wine Windows. First popularized in the 16th century by wealthy vineyard owners who wanted to serve wine but avoid taxes, these tiny windows still remain as features in buildings all over Florence, Italy. They look like little doors in the middle of a wall just big enough to pass a bottle of wine through, and there are hundreds of them across the city. While the original intent was simply fun and tax evasion, they quickly became a popular method of serving people while avoiding the plague. And they didn't simply rely on being behind a wall to avoid contagion. Quoting a blog post from the cultural association Bouchette del Vino, wine producers passed the flask of wine through the window to the client, but did not receive payment directly into their hands. Instead, they passed a metal pallet to the client, who placed the coins on it, and then the seller disinfected them with vinegar before collecting them. 
Wine purveyors also attempted to avoid touching the wine flasks, which were brought back to them by the client, in two different ways. Either the client purchased wine, which was already bottled, or the client was allowed to fill his or her flask directly by using a metal tube which was passed through the window and was connected to the demijohn on the outside of the palace. End quote. And now that there is another pandemic, the wine windows are back in action. Some of them have actually been revived over the past few years thanks to Bouchette Delvino, who has been cataloging them since 2015. But now they are having a real renaissance. Since not every window is connected to a vineyard anymore, they're being used to serve up all kinds of things. Wine, yes, but also cocktails, coffee, and even gelato. They are super cool looking and a great way to social distance, so maybe places that don't have a historical analog will try sawing holes in the walls of their establishments. Probably not, but I'd be into it. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you all had a good weekend and have a good rest of your day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.